We are in Acts chapter 19 this morning. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses, Lord willing, of Acts chapter 19. (coughs) Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer and then we can read the text and then examine the text and uh, see where we go. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity for us to be here together again today. I pray that you will remind us of your truth as we consider your text the inspired Word of God, and I pray that you will, you will remind us in such a way that it, it captivates, your Word captivates us, and that your Word will cut all the way to the, to the, to the very marrow of our lives. I pray you will cut in such a way by your Word that will expose us to ourselves, expose our need for you, expose your great gift to us and remind us of your working in our world and in our lives. So Lord, I pray that you will help us this morning as we consider what you say. In your name I pray, amen. (coughs) Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 1, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, The Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the halls of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. We have an interesting text because it, at several levels. One level is because it references a, uh, a section of Acts that happened just previously in the previous chapter. And so we see a connection to the previous chapter, and that's intriguing at some level. And we'll, we'll recognize that. It's an intriguing text because you have um, Paul meeting people who don't understand the truth yet, and his interaction with them is interesting. It's intriguing, of course, because of the speaking in tongues and prophesying that take place. We'll talk about that. Uh, There's a lot there, in other words, that we have to cover. Um, There is a few other intriguing things that we will pause on and and uh, and work through briefly. Many of these things are going to be very, very brief because there's so many little tidbits in here. But we want to focus in on the one major thing that I think is in the text. There's a lot of really interesting things, but there's one major thing that is in the text that I don't think we necessarily see as a major thing. And yet I would argue it probably is the major thing in the entire text. Uh, so... Let's work our way through it. Again, I've got a lot of um, what, if I, can, if I can use a football analogy, the announcers, the one announcer announces the plays, the other announcer is the color commentator, right? 
There's a lot of color in this story. I mean, there's a lot of color in this story. And we certainly don't want to minimize or ignore the color. So this is kind of be, if I may be clear with you, it's kind of going to be a, a really disjointed message this morning. Because there's so much color here. And it's important that we see it and interact with it, but we don't want to lose track of the major thing that's going on here. At least the thing that I think, at least for this morning, is really major that we need to identify. So let's just work our way through. We're going to go verse by verse and talk about the color. It's not going to be really nicely organized except verse by verse. So I hope you can all bear with that as we work our way through. Verse 1 again. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth. You remember he was at, at Ephesus and he went uh, to Achaia where Corinth is. At that same time that he's in Corinth, for however, however long he was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country. Inland country, by the way, means that he's coming a different way. When he left Ephesus, Ephesus he took a ship if you remember, and went back eventually to Antioch. He went by ship from Ephesus to, to um, Caesarea, then to uh, Jerusalem, and then up to Antioch. And the idea is then when he left Antioch, he wandered across country. Instead of taking the direct ship route, he wandered across country and hit a bunch of places that he'd already ministered to. Does that make sense so far? And so when it says he took the inland country he went through the inland country he's talking about the highlands as he travels through the small villages up in the highlands that's all that means eventually as he's traveling through the inland country he comes back to Ephesus you will remember and that's the first interesting thing he had already been to Ephesus once if you remember and he was there very very briefly as a matter of fact as far as we can tell in the text in chapter 18 he probably was there for a day or so he spoke once, they asked him to stay, in the, he spoke in the synagogue, they, and they asked him to stay longer so they could learn more about this, and he said, no, but if the Lord's willing, I'll be back. Well, here he is, however long later, and he's finally back. I would bet it's at least a year or two, just because of the long journey, if that makes sense. So a year or two later, he arrives back in Ephesus, so there's, and that becomes important because there's a, a, a significant period of time that has taken place. Paul spoke once, no, uh, nobody repented and believed. Uh, uh, Aquila and Priscilla stayed. And it, while uh, Aquila and Priscilla stayed, they found one guy one time got up and he spoke powerfully. And they talked to him and they realized he didn't have all the truth, right? You remember? What was his name? Apollos. And so they sat him down and they worked through it with him to help him understand the truth. He believed and preached that then. But then shortly thereafter, he wanted to go to where? Achaia, where Corinth is. And, and, and uh, the, uh, the people, the believers in the church, including Aquila and Priscilla, and per, uh, perhaps a few more, agreed and sent him with their blessing and, and a letter with him so that they would receive him well there in Corinth. And so off he went. So he's at Corinth. In other words, it doesn't sound like Apollos had a long-term ministry in Ephesus. Make sense? Aquila and Priscilla did, or Priscilla and Aquila, whichever way you want to say it, they did. It's mentioned both ways in the New Testament. They were, they were there for quite a while. We don't know how long they were there, but they were there for quite a while. In any case, the evidence that we have in the text this morning is that their ministry in Ephesus at this point in time wasn't that effective. The evidence doesn't seem to be that it was that effective. What, 
when we, when we say effective, we're talking about from human standpoints, salvations type of thing. Make sense? And the reason why I say that is because at the end of verse 1, Luke, yeah, Luke describes the situation is that he comes back, that Paul comes back to Ephesus. When he arrives there, he found, and the term he uses is disciples. Well, that's a good term, right? Sounds like they're believers. Well, we'll find out in a little bit they're not yet believers. But they're disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple means basically someone who is a learner. And you can add to it a follower of what they're learning. <clears throat> okay, does that make sense? So they're a disciple. He discovers their disciple. And he then, when he discovers their disciple, that is, they seem to believe the truth. This is like an initial meeting. You get the sense. It, real early in their conversation. He's talking to them. It becomes really evident. Have you ever been in that situation where you're talking to somebody and they sound like they're a believer? And you're like, these dudes are believers. And then you start probing. You discover, you discover real quickly, oh, maybe not. You ever been there? <laughs> it happens quite often, actually. And that, that, that makes this text really interesting because it does happen quite often. If you're talking the gospel and interacting with, with people, you're going to discover quite often that people are going to sound like believers until you push a little harder. They're going to sound like disciples. And they are, because everyone's a disciple, right? Everybody's a learner, everybody's a follower. And so Paul meets these people, and he found these people who are disciples, but he has to find out what they're disciples of. They sound like they are disciples of the truth, but then he asks them a poignant question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Believed what? Believe whatever the corpus is of truth that they are seemingly believing. Does that make sense? And he asks them a really interesting question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I don't know about you, but that sets my mind to spinning. Because I've got to be honest, that's not a question I usually ask people. In fact, I don't know of anybody who asks that kind of question. But Paul does ask this question. I'm not saying this is the patented question that everybody ought to always ask. But what's important about that statement in verse 2, that question I mean is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It's, the point of it is really important. Because what's Paul really asking? What Paul's really asking is, is this. Is the, I see you believe this stuff. You have this corpus of belief, right? What he's really asking is something really important. What's the effect of all that? That's what he's asking. How is that affecting your life? How is that transforming you? Is that merely... Some files in your brain. Does that make sense? Is, is all that data that you have, this is what he's asking them, is all that, that data you have merely data? Because they've been learners, disciples. They've got this truth, this grasp of this 
section of truth. Paul does not know yet how big their grasp of truth is. He'll know in just a second. But his interesting question is not how, initially, is not how much truth do you have. His initial question is, can be boiled down to when he asks the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, is, has it transformed you? Has the truth that you have received made you different? Now, we must not fly over this point, even though I think it, it, in some level, is perhaps part of the color of the story, and I think it probably is, but it's an important, probably one of the most important color parts of the story. Because too often, that's exactly where we find ourselves. We get all sorts of truth, we get all sorts of understanding, but we're not transformed, right? We're not transformed. And the reason why I'm camping on this for a little while is because when we get to the thing that I think is essential in this story, this is the issue. This piece of color is the issue. It is, it is the thing that absolutely drives us to this point of the central point. Is Does the amount of truth we have does it and has it been and as it can, is it continuing to transform us? And the only way that the answer to that can be yes is what? Is if verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because if you did, the argument everywhere in the New Testament is if you received the Holy Spirit when you believed, the simple matter of fact is you will be, you were, and you are being transformed. That is not negotiable in the, in the Scriptures anywhere. I've quoted the text numerous times. I'll quote it again this morning from Ephesians chapter 1. I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 1. I am confident of this very thing. And you know the reason why I keep quoting certain texts? You know why I keep quoting them? There's several reasons. Number one, because they're central and crucial texts. But number two is because if I keep quoting them, instead of just referencing them, I'm helping you memorize them. <laughs> I'm drilling them deeply into your heads and into your mind. That's what I'm trying to do anyway. I am confident of this very thing, Paul says, that he who has begun the good work in you will what? Continue to perfect you to the day of Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul didn't say. He didn't say he will continue to remind you of that truth. He didn't say he'll continue to make sure that you never forget that truth. That's what he said, is he? Did he? That's not what he said. He said, I am confident of this very thing that he who began the good work, and the good work is not just remembering. It's not just having data. He who began the good work in you, that is the transformation, sanctification, making you more and more like your older brother, your redeemer, your savior, Jesus. That he who began it, taking you from death to life, will continue that in a growing way, greater and greater life, more and more like our new Father God, as John calls it, until the day of Jesus Christ, until the day we are perfected in every way. That's what he says. 
and it's, it, that's consistent throughout the Scriptures, if the Holy Spirit has come, transformation has taken place, past tense, it is continuing to take place, present tense, and it will continue to take place, future tense, until we are translated to glory, in which case it will be completed. Does that make sense? So it's perfectly appropriate for Paul to ask these disciples this really important question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And it is an absolutely loaded question. He's not expecting them to say, yes, we did, and just leave it at that. Because that's not evidence, is it? Is it? That's not even an answer. Yes, we did. Not from a scriptural perspective. Because if that's what they said, yeah, we did. We received the Holy Spirit. You know what Paul's response would have been? Yeah, what's the evidence of it? What does that look like? How are you being transformed? How were you transformed? How is the Spirit at work changing you? How is the Holy Spirit working in and through you by the Scriptures to be light in the midst of darkness? These are the kind of questions you'd be asking. Repeatedly. Now, this is a really important question because when we get to the very end of this text, there's going to be something else that pops up, another piece of color that pops up that's going to, if, if, if I'm right, it should take our breath away a little bit. So I want you to remember this statement in the beginning. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It is interesting, their response. Their response is not what you'd expect. I mean, you can, in America, you could probably go up to, to the average religious person in America today and say, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they'd say, yeah, <laughs> of course I did. But their response is what? No. Now, I got to tell you something. That's probably the Holy Spirit working them. <laughs> it's got to be the Holy Spirit at work in them. Because that's not how people would respond. They said, no, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Which is an interesting introduction into the thinking and experience of these people and what they were taught. By the way. If I could just make a guess. And it is just a guess. I suspect that these people who we're going to find are 12 people in just a little bit. I suspect these 12 people probably were ministered to by Apollos. Pre-Apollos finding out about Jesus as a fulfillment of John's ministry. Because he was a disciple of John, the, uh, of probably a disciple of a disciple of John the Baptist. Or maybe there was a few more in between. We don't know. But certainly when Paul, when, when, I'm sorry, when Aquila and Priscilla met Apollos in Ephesus, he didn't know about Jesus' completed work, right? He didn't know about that at all. And what's interesting is we get to this point and we meet these 12 people and they say, no, we've not, number one, we've not received the Holy Spirit, but number two, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. 
which is a stunning statement by, by a, a disciple of a disciple of a disciple, however many times, of John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist talked about the Holy Spirit all the time. It's recorded over and over again in the New Testament that he talked about the Holy Spirit. And yet, by this point in time, now this, again, is color, but it's a very important color for this story. By this point, point of time, in time, what do we have? We have a disciple of a disciple of a disciple of a disciple, who knows how many, of John the Baptist. By the time it got to these 12, the gospel message had become so truncated, had been so butchered, that although they believed the message they'd received, the message had been so truncated that even though one of the central emphases of John the Baptist about the Holy Spirit had been removed from the story. I'm not saying it had been removed purposely, but it had been removed. It was gone. These are not people, just for clarification, these are not just people who heard one time a John the Baptist gospel message, believed it, and never heard it again. These are called what by Luke? Disciples. They're steeped in what they had learned. But you know what was missing? The Holy Spirit. One of John's major emphases. Obviously, John the Baptist's major emphasis was what? Jesus Christ. But in talking about Jesus Christ, he almost always talked about the Holy Spirit as well. Now, the Holy Spirit's gone. They didn't even know what the Holy Spirit was. Now, if I may just pause, step out of the text for a second. This should serve a really significant warning to us. Can I just ask you real quick, what do you think the warning is? Help me out. What do you think the warning is? I'm sorry? Okay, warning number one, not the one I was thinking about, but did we receive the Holy Spirit, right? Absolutely, with regard to the bigger picture that we've already been talking about. You're absolutely right, Jim. Have we received the Holy Spirit? Really important question. Okay, and this is the point I was getting tight, tightly getting to right here, is the gospel message, which wasn't really the gospel, it was just a part of the gospel in the first place, right? It was truncated. You see, John, if you go back to John the Baptist, what gospel was John the Baptist preaching? Ultimately, you'd have to argue he's preaching an Old Testament gospel message. He was preaching the message about the one who was yet to come. That was his message because the Bible tells us his purpose was to do what? Prepare the way. And when Jesus would come, the Messiah would come, he would inevitably then, and it was John the Baptist's understanding, he would complete the message. As a matter of fact, he wouldn't just complete the message, he would be the completion of the message. Make sense? So John the Baptist gave everything he had. But it itself was a truncated message by necessity. It was truncated correctly because that's all he had at that point, right? But what happened? John the Baptist ordained truncated message. What happened to it? It got more truncated, didn't it? 
Because the Holy Spirit's gone at this point in the message. In the John the Baptist message, even the discussion of the Holy Spirit's gone. Now, that was not an ordained truncation, was it? Not in, in any way. Now, what's the warning then? That it's very easy to truncate the gospel message. Do you understand that? It's very easy, and it almost is natural, not supernatural, although it is from a dark, you know, a, a kingdom of darkness perspective, but it is so easy to leave things off, isn't it? Now today, our problem isn't usually the Holy Spirit. There are some circles that it is. You know what our problem is today? To leave off the painful discussion of sin and condemnation. We don't want to talk about the law anymore. We don't want to talk about the reason why we deserve absolute condemnation. We don't want to, we don't want to talk about God being a wrathful God, do we? We don't want to talk about God being angry and specifically what he's angry about. Why? Because that turns people off, right? And so we just say, you know what? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Oh, there's a little problem you sinned. Ah, oh, but that's why Christ died. See, that's what we just did. We just truncated the message. Now, what's the danger in that? You know what the danger is? At some point, it's no longer the gospel. At some point, the gospel no longer be, is the gospel. Can I ask you a question? Is the gospel the gospel if the Holy Spirit's not involved? No! Why? Because it takes the Holy Spirit to take someone from death to life. If the Holy Spirit's not involved, you're not saved. Correct? It, go back to what we just said earlier. If I'm not transformed, being transformed currently and continuing to be transformed, is the Holy Spirit involved? No. If, I'm not, if that's not happening, then am I, am I, is the Holy Spirit involved? No. If the Holy Spirit's not involved, then am I really saved? No. Is this important to Paul? Do you get a sense it's really important to him? It's absolutely essential in Paul's theology. Holy Spirit's got to be involved, and that involvement means taking you from death to life and transforming you in life. Could I just, real quick before we move beyond this, is there any evidence of that happening in Paul's life? I mean, do I even need to ask the question? <laughs> right? I don't even need to ask it, do I? We can go to many other people in the Scriptures, but we know it's clear, isn't it? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not, we, haven't, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, or asked them, into what then were you baptized? Now Paul's really intrigued. Like, wait a second. Their gospel is really truncated. Their understanding of truth has been, what? Corrupted. Corrupted. 
And the truth must be there in order for someone to truly be saved. The, 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 the whole truth of the gospel has to be there. We can't go ahead and pick and choose, slice and dice the gospel to make it work better. It doesn't do that. This last Monday, I preached at my father-in-law's funeral. I know uh, Jim and Lois were there. <clears throat> it's one of the things I really emphasized, didn't I? Wrath, anger, wicked, sinful. That was a total, almost complete focus of the message. You know why? Because we don't want to talk about that. But that is the absolute foundation. I have nothing to talk about if we're not going to talk about that. Why? Because if, there's, if that's not true, there's no need. There's no need. We talked about the Holy Spirit as well. And that's where Paul is here. Wait a second. If the Holy Spirit's not working. And we talked about transformation. Why? Because if the Holy Spirit's not working, death to life and life to more life, then there's no Holy Spirit, there's no salvation. So he asks the question, wait a second. Into what then were you baptized? And their response, they said, into John's baptism. Now Paul knows. Paul knows completely now where they're at. And he also knows that, that the Holy Spirit has been truncated right out of the gospel. Even the John the Baptist gospel. And so he goes on and he says, uh, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. What, now, obviously, this is, a, uh, this is just a summation. And we're going to find out about that in a little bit. It's just a summation. But what he does, he says, listen, you need to understand something. John the Baptist's message and his ministry was an Old Testament message. And it really was. The entire Old Testament was a call to people to repent because what? The Messiah was coming, and they're evil, sinful people who have failed with the law every step of the way. Correct? John the Baptist is saying the exact same thing. But it's a, a, a call to repentance for the thing that is yet to happen. And what Paul does then with them is, in effect, when he says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is coming after him, and then he says, that is Jesus. The implication that you have to see is that what he's really doing here is, and let me tell you about him. Does that make sense so far? And what Paul did, I can guarantee you, because this is Paul's way, is he then proceeded, and it's not just Paul's way, it's Peter's way, it's John's way, it's all the New Testament apostles' way, it's all the ones that are working with and, and, and for, you know, for the spreading of the gospel alongside the apostles. It's always their way. It is Jesus, and this is who Jesus is. And this is who Jesus, what Jesus accomplished. This is what Jesus did on the cross. And this is who Jesus is because of His completed cross work. And this is what happened with Jesus, His resurrection. And this is what happened with Jesus, His ascension. And this is the promise from Jesus that He will return. And this is the promise of Jesus is that when He returns, He's going to judge. 
what he did, what Paul did with these people is he laid out with them the truth, the completed work of Jesus. What Jesus was and is the fulfillment of all these things that John the Baptist talked about and more. He's a fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. All the prophecies, everything looked towards Jesus. So he declares that. He gives them, in other words, the completed story. Does that make sense? He gives them the, com the completed historical redemptive story that they needed to hear. <clears throat> we're going to get into that more when we get to the central point. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, which means that they believed. They repented and believed not just about what was to come. Now they are repenting and believing for what or who has come and what He has accomplished, what He has fulfilled. They repent and they believe and were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Sounds like transformation to me by the Spirit, doesn't it? Then it goes on in verse 6. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. We'll stop there just for a second. Now there's a lot of debate on did they get baptized and then Paul laid his hands on them or did Paul lay his hands on them while he was baptizing them and they received the Holy Spirit. I don't think any of that matters. What matters is the Holy Spirit came upon them dramatically. Powerfully. Now, obviously, this is a little different what happens later in the book of Acts and in the later uh, epistles that are written. And it's important to recognize the difference. This is a pretty dramatic storyline, isn't it? It says, he lays his hands on them, the Spirit falls upon them, and then the next verse, what does it say, or the same verse later on, right afterwards, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying. Pretty dramatic, right? I would argue that doesn't happen today. We have called those sign gifts. I think it's an appropriate term. But signs for what? Well, especially it applies here. It's interesting. This is the, this is the first time the speaking in tongues and, and prophesying showed up for quite a while in the book of Acts, isn't it? First time in quite a while. Why here? Why now? Well, here's the reason why. Here and now in this text. Because these are Jewish believers. They've just become believers. Before then, they were followers of John, they were followers of John the Baptist, right? And they were, they were believing the gospel message, the truncated gospel message of John the Baptist. Remember what, we, what we're finding out, and we'll find out just in a little bit, is he's still ministering to the Jews in the synagogue, right? We'll see that starting in verse 8. But the point of the Spirit coming upon them like this and tongues and prophesying and there's no record of what they were prophesying or what they were saying in tongues, which is fine. The point is, it's to show that as Paul has been saying that the gospel is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Old Testament storyline is fulfilled in Jesus Christ because it always and forever pointed to Jesus Christ. This message being given is demonstrated as they've received the gospel message, it demonstrates Paul's message to them that it's fulfilled in Jesus. The Holy Spirit moves in them 
and the demonstration that the Holy Spirit is moving in them is they do something that even all the Jews would know could only happen by the Holy Spirit. So the demonstration is that Paul's message is true, which is what it's been every step of the way with tongues and prophesying and all the rest of the sign gifts, is that the message being presented early on is a fulfillment because Isaiah talked about that very thing would happen. That very thing, prophesying, tongues, it would all happen. And so what happens? They begin to speak in tongues, they begin to prophesy, showing Jews, because he's ministering to the Jews in the synagogue, that the message is the biblical fulfillment of everything the Old Testament pointed toward. That's the point of it. And then finally we get to verse 7. And Luke records there were about 12 men in all. I just want to pause on verse 7 for just a second. I'm going to get off it because there's a lot of speculation. For you know, We know that there's very little in the book of Acts that's throwaway. There's some probably just simple color to make it more interesting. But generally speaking, it's not the case. And I don't know what to do with the statement. There are 12 men in all. There are 12, about 12 men in all. It's an intriguing statement because 12 is usually a pretty significant thing in, in the Scriptures. And people have bantered around various possibilities of what this means. There are 12 men in all. I'm not sure what to do with that. Possibly it could be um, representing that, that, that the whole message to the Jews over the course of the entire uh, Old Testament is now shifting and the gospel is now 12. You know, 12 tribes. A lot of people have played with that. I don't know what to do with it. I just throw that out there for you to chew on. Do whatever you want with it. In any case, the more important things we're going to discover come next. Verse 8, And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Could I just submit to you that verse 8 is the absolute essence of what this text is about? And this is where we want to be. The rest we've covered at this point in time is the color of the story. An important color. There's more important color coming after this. But for three months, he's going into the synagogue. Probably, by the way, again, a little bit of an aside, a little bit of color. This is his world championship event. What I mean by that is there's no record of him ever going longer than this without having bad things happen to him. Usually it's just a few, a few weeks, a few meetings. But here he makes it three months. He's reasoning with them, talking to them about the gospel, presenting the gospel, showing the Jews that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the gospel. He makes it three months before things go sideways and then go south. So there's a little bit more of the color. But for three months, notice what he does. And this is what's really important. For three months, he gets together with them in the synagogue. And notice how it's described by Luke. Number one, he speaks boldly he speaks boldly he's not shy he's not ashamed he's not trying to fly under the radar is he now it's really easy to say well he's paul what do you expect but this shows up too often in other people's lives as well speaking boldly we know that stephen for example did he speak boldly a little bit yeah he spoke boldly we find that over and over and over, Timothy, boldly. And he's warned not to be timid later on. Right? Speak boldly. And you find it over and over and over. Here we find Paul doing what? Speaking boldly. Now, 
why do I stop on this for just a second? I'm just on it for a second. Here's why. Because that's the Holy Spirit at work in, in Paul, isn't it? It sounds to me like evidence of transformation, doesn't it? When you read Speak Boldly, the one thing you have to remember is that Paul was pretty bold with his persecution, wasn't he? Was he? He was pretty bold with his imprisonment of Christians, wasn't he? He was pretty bold with his, with his killing of Christians, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Sounds like transformation to me. Sounds like he's loving what he once hated. Doesn't it? He's bold. He's preaching boldly, it says, firstly. And then he goes on preaching boldly or speaking boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, this is where we want to really stop. Speaking boldly, reasoning, and persuading them about the kingdom of God. I, I just find the statement in that sentence intriguing. And I think it is central to the entire text. In fact, I think it is the point of the entire text. He's in the synagogue. He's boldly speaking. And notice he's reasoning with them. And we know there's two words miss, or three words missing here that show up repeatedly earlier. Let's see if you can remember it. Reasoning with them from the Scriptures. Three words. Reasoning with them from the Scriptures. Right? And persuading them, you could add in again, from the Scriptures. And we're going to get into that. But I just want to stop on that for a little bit because I think it's really interesting. He's reasoning and persuading them from the Scriptures for three months. What's intriguing about that? Well, here's what's intriguing about that. Paul knew the Scriptures, the Old Testament, very well, didn't he? He was a Pharisee. He was schooled in the Scriptures, right? He was trained. But let me ask you a question. Everything you learned, right or wrong? What was it? Right or wrong? It was wrong. You know Why? Because they didn't see any of it as pointing to Jesus. Right? None of it was pointing to Jesus. The, the, the school he went to hated Jesus. The Pharisees hated Jesus. They despised him and rejected him. What does John 1 say? He came unto his own, but his own received him not. Why did they receive him not? Well, because... They didn't see that the, spirit, that, the, that the Scriptures were talking about Jesus, right? And they rejected that. Isaiah 51, 53 says what? They despised and what? Rejected Him. They went their own way. That's what it says. There was nothing about Him that was attractive to them. Does that make sense? And why was that? Because the Spirit wasn't at work in them. Does that make sense so far? But for Paul, on the road to Damascus, 
after learning everything wrongly and being convinced in the wrong way of thinking about the Old Testament, he was confronted by Jesus. The Spirit moved in his life and he was gloriously saved. And we've already talked about the transformation, right? But now we find Paul, Saul, who knows the Scriptures all wrongly. We know that he spends time out in the wilderness for three and a half years learning, right? Relearning the Scriptures. Relearning the truth. Does that make sense? So that when he arrives in Ephesus, he can go to the synagogue and speak to people who are learned people. It's not just the congregants, it's the leaders as well, which we already know about from his previous experiences, right? The various leaders that repented and believed. And he reasoned with them for how long? Three months. He persuaded them for how long? Three months. He did it boldly how long? Three months. I don't know about you, but that's kind of impressive to me. Every Saturday at least, if not during the week as well, he was going for three months. And their services were not short. He was reasoning with them for hours at a time. I'm telling you, the way it would go is he'd go to the service and the, the, pre, the, the rabbi would get up and start to speak and Paul would go, excuse me, right in the middle of the service. Excuse me, but that's talking about Jesus. I mean, Jim, I'm going to use you as an illustration this morning because what we talked about. The rabbi sitting there reading Psalms 21 through 24, you said, right? 21 through 24. And he's reading it, and there's Paul. He's like, Amen. Hallelujah. Excuse me. That's talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And the rabbi would say, No, it's not. And he'd say, Oh, yes, it is. Let's look at it. And it would go back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth, as Paul was boldly proclaiming the truth of the text that the rabbi was in that morning. And boldly reasoning, not just with the rabbi, because you know what's going to happen pretty quickly, right? As he's, re as he's reasoning with the, with the rabbi, what's going to start happening pretty quickly? It turns into a group Bible study. And it's one against everybody. And he's doing what? He's boldly reasoning and persuading people about Jesus from the Scriptures. Could I ask you a quick question? Just a really simple question before we get into the rest of this verse. How long would that last for you? How long would that last for me? 
Now, Paul's not our standard. Don't get me wrong. But remember when we started about transformation? Right? Do you think the Holy Spirit transforming us would look like a dramatically changing transformation of our understanding of the Scriptures? Do you think it would start changing us from the perspective of craving to know the truth in the Scriptures? Do you think that's maybe what the Spirit does? The reason why I asked the question is because if you listen to the average gospel presentation today, going back to where we were in the beginning, we have to acknowledge that the average presentation of the gospel today is really truncated. It's all the way down to, here's five verses, pray this prayer. Isn't it? Isn't it? That's it. Here's five verses, pray this prayer. Compare and contrast that to three months boldly reasoning and persuading people time after time after time. How quickly can you memorize five verses from Romans? Let's try it for a second. All have sinned. Well, that was pretty easy, wasn't it? Is that a true verse? Yeah, is it a good verse? Absolutely. The wages of sin is death, but... Pretty simple, isn't it? Get three more in there and we're set to go, right? We can storm, we can storm hell with our squirt guns, can't we? Right? I mean, does it start to sound a little silly? Is it starting to sound a little silly? I hope so. It should be starting to sound a little silly. For three months, just picture it in your mind. Can you imagine for three months if Paul would go into the synagogue and he just kept repeating the Romans road to him over and over and over again for three months? I mean, really? No, the transformation of spirit in his life caused him, led him to go back and look at the corpus of Old Testament truth and see it correctly. Whereas before he didn't. And then inflamed his heart with the correct understanding. He was enthralled with the Old Testament, wasn't he? He was absolutely consumed with the truth of the promised prophesied Redeemer and the fulfillment of that Redeemer being Jesus Christ. He was absolutely transformed in that from hating the things he ought to be loving to loving the things he ought to love. And that was by the Spirit. So specifically, what does Luke record he talked about? It is specific. What exactly is he boldly reasoning with them and persuading them about. Notice what it is. 
he entered the synagogue, verse 8, and for three months boldly, or spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the Romans' road. Is that what it says? No. What does it say? And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. He hadn't written Romans yet. He would change later on, right? Yeah, nice. It is interesting. Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry. His preaching. What did he preach about? The kingdom of God. That's what he preached about. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know what his ministry was? The kingdom of God. Paul. What does he talk about all the time? The kingdom of God. Old Testament prophets, what do they talk about all the time? The kingdom of God. Peter, James, John, what are they talking about regularly? The kingdom of God. It is front and center with all of their ministries from beginning to end. Kingdom of God. You know what the gospel ministry is all about today? Hell is bad. Heaven is good. Jesus died so that you, because of your sin, don't need to go to hell, but you can go to heaven instead. I know that's a gross simplification. But that's the message. And sometimes not so gross. Well, it's gross, but not a simplification. The Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles, and Jesus preached the kingdom of God. You go to the average Christian today and you ask him, what can you tell me about the kingdom of God? You know what the average Christian is going to tell you? They're probably going to tell you, what time's the game on? Because they have nothing to say. Because the concept for many, 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 many Christians is foreign. And you know what else? I find oftentimes I start talking about those things with with people who claim to be Christians, you know what the first thing I start to see happening? The glaze starting to form over their eyes. Why is that? Why is that? Why is it that, that people don't know and can't converse about the kingdom of God when that was central in Jesus' ministry, when that was central in the Old Testament uh, uh, prophets' ministries, when it was central in the apostles' uh, ministries, why is it the average Christian can't talk about it nor is interested in it? And I heard you, Jim. Maybe the Spirit's not at work. Maybe they've never baptized by the Spirit. Maybe. Because it is the very core I mean, even, even Jesus, when, he, when, when people asked him, how do we pray, he said what? Our kingdom, my kingdom, or, 
or oh. how's it start? My mind just pulled a blank. What is it? Yeah, the thing. How's it start? Our Father, thank you. Our Father, our, I'm not Catholic. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That sounds like a central aspect of that prayer, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Are you supposed to pray that way? Why do you tell us to pray that way? Why do you tell us so centrally to pray about the kingdom of God? Because it's central to everything. It's so essential to everything gospel-related. And sometimes I'll find people that want to talk about the kingdom of God, but all they want to do is talk about the future. The millennial kingdom and everything else in the future. Is, is, is the future stuff essential with regard to the kingdom? Yes, but is it the central part of it? No. Jesus himself said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Who is he talking about? He was talking about himself. He was absolutely talking about himself. How much do we know about the kingdom of God? Uh, we went through Mark and John specifically. One of the major emphases I had there was to talk about the kingdom of God. I wanted to help us understand in a bigger, better way all about the kingdom of God. And how much of our conversation with other believers is centered upon the kingdom of God? How much are we enthralled with and driven to know in a deeper and greater way the kingdom of God? You know, we, if I may go back to the typical gospel presentation being the Romans road, do you know what's essential that people understand today? It's essential they understand there's two kingdoms. It's essential that people understand there's two kingdoms. And they're either in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. They're either in the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of Satan. And if you just set your mind to think about those two categories, my goodness, we could reason for three, hours, for three months just on those two categories. But it's got to be from the Scriptures. My goodness, the... the, the the roots that flow out from even just those two statements I just made, kingdom of darkness, kingdom of light. It's all over the place. We find ourselves today in positions where we are trying to get across a gospel that doesn't have anything to do with real life. It has to do with when? Way out in the future somewhere. But the kingdom of darkness, kingdom of light is today, now, here. It also is there, right? It's also there, but it's here and now as well. And it's essential that we understand that what Paul does is he goes there and he's talking about the kingdom of God. And you can say, well, he's talking to Jews. Of course, they have all the Old Testament understanding of the kingdom of darkness, kingdom of light, kingdom of God, and all the rest of it. They have all that Old Testament belief system already built in, right? Yes. And if I talk to an unbeliever, that just means I have a whole lot more to talk to him about. Do you realize that? 
because I'm talking to a Gentile unbeliever who's not steeped in the Old Testament, that's where I need to be. What does God actually say about kingdoms? And can I say as believers, as people who claim to be believers, this kingdom thing is so important to you and I. Because kingdom things are all about identity things. And when we talk about kingdoms with people, we're talking to them about their identity. If you're part of the kingdom of darkness, we're talking about your identity. And you know what? Our passions do show us. Our, 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 our zeals, our desires, and all the rest show us about kingdoms. We know they do. Remember 9-11? Do you remember? Remember when the planes flew in to the, to the building? Maybe you were watching TV at that point, or maybe you were at work and somebody told you about it. You know as well as I do, passions were inflamed, weren't they? Have any idea why? Is it because we love the World Trade Center? Is it because we think, we, we thought at that point in time that, that, that uh, skyscrapers were really cool and I identify with skyscrapers? No. Y'all know why. Because why? We're come on. Americans. And we're attacked. The kingdom that we identify with, America, was attacked by an enemy. Does that make sense? Were people flippant about that? No. You know why? Because identity was at play. Does that make sense? It's because identity was at play. Do you think that if the Spirit's at work in believers, that passion would be there more so than that? More so than 9-11? You do realize that the kingdom of darkness is flying spiritual planes at the kingdom of light all the time. You realize that, right? Does that make sense? If our identity is in the kingdom of light and the king of the kingdom, and remember what Matthew 28 says, then don't, wouldn't, you expect, wouldn't you expect that passions would be inflamed? Wouldn't you expect that? Wouldn't you expect that if, if, if our identity really is with the king of the kingdom of light and therefore with the kingdom of light, wouldn't you expect that we would be able to reason about the superiority of the kingdom of light over the kingdom of darkness? Wouldn't you, and from the scriptures, from the foundational documents, wouldn't you think that we would be inflamed to be able to boldly reason and persuade people with regard to the king of that kingdom? Wouldn't you expect it? It makes sense if the Spirit's at work. Because if the Spirit's at work, that means that that really is my identity. But if the Spirit's not at work, where's my identity? The kingdom of darkness. And therefore, there'd be little or no passions and zeal. Right? Make sense? I do believe verse 8 is the central thing. We've got to fly because we're running out of time. Verse 9, 
Obviously, it happens every time, but some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. Come in contact with Jesus, there's going to be a response, right? A reaction. Paul's inflamed, and so are those who don't believe, right? They're both inflamed. Like, there's no neutral parties, is there? No neutral parties. So he withdraws from them, the congregation, and took the disciples, these 12, with him, and he continued to reason daily in the hall of Tyrannus, which, right, which is right next door from the synagogue. And it was a place, that it was a, uh, they had a hall where you could do open discussions all the time. So he went there. This continued for two years in that hall. Notice what it says. So that all the residents of Asia, I want you to hear this, this concluding color of the story. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, we do need to qualify because Asia does not mean what Asia means today. Asia in that day was Western Turkey, just to give you a perspective. Still pretty impressive. To make it more clear, basically, the Asia that's being referenced here is where the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 are. Okay, got it so far? Basically, that's the idea. So it spread. That's the point. He's ministering in, in Ephesus and it's spread throughout western, modern-day Turkey. And notice how Luke writes it. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Does it sound like the Spirit got a hold of some people? Does it? Just a little bit? It went throughout that area. Everybody heard the word of the, and the, Luke chooses it really specifically. Everyone heard what? The scriptures. Everyone heard the word of the Lord. The word of God was being trumpeted by people who had received the Holy Spirit. You know, it's really interesting, and that's the color. And why I say it's important? Because I think it gives us a really important lesson outside of the book of Acts. Because the church in Asia is referenced several other times. This is about three-quarters of the way through Paul's ministry, approximately. Maybe a little less. We're in his third mission, missionary journey. Everything's going to go downhill from here, from here on out. For Paul, physically speaking, earthly speaking. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, which may be about 10 to 15 years later after this, maybe a little more, Paul writes something about the church in Asia. What does he say about him? The entire church in Asia left me. Now, he's not talking about, oh, everybody rejected me. Woe is me, I feel bad, don't you feel bad for me? No, when he says that, he's talking about they left the gospel because that is what Paul is. They left the kingdom of God because that's who Paul is. It is his identity, Jesus and his kingdom. So if they leave Jesus' kingdom, they leave Paul. Does that make sense? So just a short time after that, what happens once again to the gospel? 
because there's still a church, because he says the church in Asia left me. As it says. Implication, there's still a church. There's still churches. But what happened? What's that? They left the gospel. The gospel got, tru- got truncated once again, didn't it? It got truncated once again. And then, about 30 years after Paul writes that in 2 Timothy, John the Apostle writes Revelation 2 and 3. And what's the condition of those churches, generally speaking? Oh, there's one church that's doing really well. So it seems like, in the end of Paul's life, all of them left, but one turned back. Does that make sense? One kind of repented and responded back, and they were a good church. The Philadelphia church seems to be doing really well. The rest of them are in various states of decay. And everybody looks, by the way, if I may, an aside, everybody looks at Revelation 2 and 3, and basically when they talk about the church, they basically end up saying what? you got to do better. you got to try harder. Isn't that what it's always preached about? you got to do better, try harder, serve God, preach the gospel, stir one another up. No. Those are all secondaries. Why are they, why are they the way they are? Because they haven't what? They haven't been about the kingdom of God. They haven't been about the king of the kingdom. They haven't been captivated with the truth. Why not? Because he who perseveres to the end, what? Will be saved. And they don't seem like they're persevering, do they? Do you see the pattern? You can see it in the Old Testament. You can see it in the New Testament. You're either baptized by the Holy Spirit and therefore enthralled with the kingdom of God and the king of that kingdom, and you find yourself being transformed by that and preaching that and preaching it boldly and, and, and reasoning and persuading. Or you're truncating. And I remember what Jesus said, the one who puts his hand to the plow, and what? And then what? Looks back, is what? Not fit for what? The what? The kingdom of heaven, that's right. Which is another term for kingdom of God. That's a scary statement, isn't it? Put your hand to the plow and then you look back? Because what happens when you look back? The plow does this. And we're talking about the message, the truth. That's never this, is it? The only way to have the plow go straight is by looking forward. Staring at the kingdom. 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 You consume with the kingdom, you're plowing, your hands at the plow, and you're still going. And the only way that happens is by the Holy Spirit. And that is it. You can't keep your hand on the plow if, you're, if the Spirit's not in you. If the Spirit's not at work in you. The only way to plow is by the Spirit. And that's why the call, even in this text, is to repent and believe. Because 
Naturally, we love the kingdom of darkness. Supernaturally, by the Spirit, we love the kingdom of God. And the evidence for loving the, loving the kingdom of God is, it may not be speaking in tongues, and it won't be, speaking in tongues and prophesying, but it will be at the same time, the same thing they did, what, which was what? Proclaiming. <laughs> Powerful evidence. And it's proclaiming what? The kingdom of God. And so the call is to repent and believe. Same call as always. To repent and believe. And the Spirit, I'm convinced, will work in us so that we will desire what? The kingdom of God. And desiring the kingdom of God, we're going to desire to know about the kingdom of God. And desiring to know about the kingdom of God, we're going to desire to read about the kingdom of God. And to study the kingdom of God. And before you know it, you know what we're going to find happening? We're going to start to boldly proclaim the kingdom of God. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. Let's pray. Lord, help us. All through history, we have been people who have regularly, continuously, consistently truncated your word, truncated the gospel. We need your spirit to inflame our hearts, captivating us with regard to your kingdom and the king of your kingdom so that we will boldly proclaim and reason and persuade people with about the kingdom of God. Help us, protect us, help us to glorify you. In your name I pray, amen.